You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, how are you and did you enjoy the election result? Well, uh, glad to be back in the office, notwithstanding what a great week's holiday I had in Helen Haynes' electorate. Uh, and yes, in the, it was an ex- interesting election. I always I like politics, but the question, Giles, for us and our readers is what does it mean for the energy industry? Well, that's a very good question. Um, the first thing it means for the energy industry is that Angus Taylor is no longer energy minister and that removes a significant policy bollard. Um, Chris Bowen, who we hope to have on sometime soon, will likely be the new energy minister. Labor ends up with probably a small majority yet to be seen, but um, it's a majority, not much. And the Greens with one, two, three maybe four seats in the lower house, but um, certainly with a big um, uh, 12 in the Senate, David Pocock, climate independent, also in the Senate from the ACT, and of course, at least half a dozen teal independents, which takes the total crossbench to 15. So a whole new different dynamics. And one personally, David, I hope that we can actually just move away from this sort of, sort of um, automatic partisan politics and actually have a sort of a broader discussion about two of the most important subjects. Uh, yes, yeah. indeed, Giles. I hope we can talk about energy, but and you and I will talk a bit more about it, but we should hear from our guest this week, who uh, is certainly has uh, energy and the environment as his uh, number one, two and three themes. Absolutely. So uh, earlier today, we talked to Adam Bant, Adam Bant, the leader of the Greens, and uh, here's what he had to say. Thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast and congratulations on the Greens result at last Saturday's election. Yeah, thanks very much. It's um, great to be on. We're still awaiting the result in a couple of final seats, but uh, it looks like we've got a record number of people voting for the Greens. Our party room, the number of MPs in Parliament will grow by uh, at least 50%, and we've got a couple of extra members in the House of Representatives as well. So it's um, that together with a change of government and the election of a number of climate, uh, pro-climate action independence, I think really sets the scene for a good parliament. Adam, just, just before Giles uh, goes on, could you just remind me, uh, what is the Green share of the national vote in the lower 12%, house? 12%. 12%. Um, and so we saw a swing to us, Liberal and Labor saw a swing against them at this, uh, at this election, but our vote went up to uh, 12%. Just It's a touch under, it's sort of, bumping around a bit and we'll wait and see all the um, when the final votes come in we'll know exactly but 12 percent that's that's a great result adam um, I, I actually heard you at the launch of one of your candidates um up in richmond uh, where i live in new south wales and you said at the time that it felt like 2010 now 2022 it looks like albanese or the labor government will scrape in with a majority i'm not entirely sure about that but certainly with the vote for the Greens, your increased representation, you'll no longer be sitting alone in the House of, um, House of Representatives. Um, there's an awful lot of teal independence, um, including at least one in the Senate. 
not a hung parliament, but certainly a change, um, a, a significant change. Oh, look, a really significant change. I mean, Labor may well scrape to a very small majority, but the crossbench is bigger than it's ever been. Uh, the vote of the um, the government is now less than you know less than one in three people across the country voted for the Labor Party, and so you've now got this situation where, roughly speaking, um, a third vote for the government, a third of voting for the opposition, and a third of voting for someone else, and. Um, it's the uh, the end of the two party system, in my view. The, you see that most obviously in the Senate, where the Greens will now have twelve senators, biggest third party in the Senate ever, and may well be in balance of power in our own right, depending on how the cards fall um, uh, in other seats across the country. So I think there's a pretty clear message from this that um, people do want third voices in Parliament, and people especially want third voices that are going to push for action on climate. And I think that even if Labor gets to a majority, it won't be a very big one, and they would ignore that the move, the fact that their vote went backwards and there was this big surge for Greens and climate independence, they'd ignore that at their peril. So, so how do you play this then? Because the Greens has uh, you know, a very ambitious policies. Um, you have a science-based climate target, um, which is so far eluded leader of the major parties. You want 100% renewable energy in the grid by 2030 is your first priority. You do not want to see any new coal and gas mines. How do you play this now um, to get um, to encourage Labor to come to the parties that were Look, we've got a real chance of making some progress on climate this in this parliament, and um, the uh, there is a- appetite and support for that for from the Australian people. And um, if it, it, it'll be up to Labor what approach they want to take, the early signs are that they're sticking with the hairy chested. You either pass it out unamended or don't pass it at all approach. I think people have had enough of that. Um, I think that kind of it's my way or the highway, take it or leave it, on something as critical as climate uh, has had its day. The, uh, we'd be very willing to sit down with the government and have a discussion about their legislative package but uh, on climate as well as other things. But they've got to understand that we see this election as delivering a mandate for climate action. And one of the most critical uh, thing from our perspective at the moment is the the idea that Labor will open new coal and gas projects. Now, if they start opening up new projects, uh, it will dwarf any potential emissions reduction that we might get from whatever legislative package gets passed through Parliament. Um, It'll make the job of tackling the climate crisis that much harder and it's ultimately a drag on um, bringing more renewables into the mix as well if the government is out there actively backing new fossil fuel projects. So for us, the key issue where that we um, can see us going to have a difference of view with the government on is new coal and gas. Um, the Scarborough project, the Beedaloo project, for example, will just blow carbon budgets and um, targets if we if they're opened. So that for us will be issue number one on the agenda, stop opening new coal and gas projects. If that's something that um, the government is willing to have a look at, then uh, we think we can see a situation in which we could come to an accommodation on the other aspects of their climate legislation, including things like targets. And and so um, 
Uh, they've got uh, at the moment, uh, I guess, a target around tightening up the um, um, uh, emissions, uh, current emissions uh, safety scheme. Uh, how do you feel uh, about that uh, particular piece of legislation? Look, at the, I mean, the, the, the safeguards mechanism uh, was really, people will recall, was really the, the coalition's response to abolishing the carbon price that was working and the government introduced a scheme that basically said it put a speed limit on uh, polluters, but every time polluters expe- exceeded the limit, the government just raised the limit, the speed limit. And it's like, you know, doing, being caught doing 60 in a 40 zone. And so the government's response is to lift the speed limit to 80. Uh, the, um, so it just, it's not been working <laughs> and um, the, can it be fixed? Look, we've, we'll see what the government than our government comes up with, uh, where our approach again is like to look at what the whether it will work, um, whether it's got further loopholes in it in the way that the the current one does, um, whether what they're proposing is actually going to lead to decarbonisation of the economy and not something that can just be um, uh, skirted around um, uh, by way of offsets, for example. All of these questions we'll have a good look at. Um, the um, we're not, although we have a, a pre- different preferred mechanism for the phase out of uh, uh, coal-fired power stations, for example, in an orderly way by 2030, and um, tackling other form uh, other pollution in industry and transport, for example. Although we might have a different preferred approach, we're happy to look at the government's approach in good faith um, and assess the legislation and see if it does the job. But again, I make the point that. Um, the government could have the best legislation in the world, but if it also opens up new coal and gas projects, then it's going to undo all of that good work. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. And I think there'd be a lot of people, it, it, because it's obviously uh, clearly is is just the case. And then you could look at the fact that uh, it's a whole of economy uh, emissions tar- target uh, and you need a policy that's going to address the whole of the economy, uh, really, if you want to achieve that. And uh, if I look at the Queensland, for instance, uh, you're constantly struck between the difference between the target target and the lack of policies. But I just wanted to come back a little bit, uh, Adam, and address the Greens more broadly, even though this is, of course, uh, 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 energy insiders. I mean, broadly speaking, the Greens, I, I want to congratulate you for making the Greens look like a cohesive unit. And I, I must say, I think that's got something to do with the vote that you've got as opposed to, uh, you know, maybe a Victorian Tasmanian thing and a New South Wales thing and, you know, lots of little factions and it it looks much more like a unit now. Uh, But if I look at the broader idea, the Greens seem to have this idea about public ownership of a lot of things uh, as opposed to uh, the private sector. And I just wondered, do you think that's a kind of how do you go from 12% to 15% and, and, and beyond? What is it over and beyond the environment that uh, the Greens offer to the Australian population? Look, one of the key decisions that we made and um, in our climate and energy plans was to put the question of coal and gas at the centre, but including that as part of a broader economic transition and making the point, I spent a lot of time in regional Queensland and regional New South Wales in coal and gas communities during the course of this campaign, making the point that um, coal and gas workers are not the enemy. The climate crisis is, and the climate crisis is fuelled by coal and gas. 
but we need to transition in a way that supports workers uh, and communities as we do that uh, transition. And so a big part of our um, uh, package, yes, was greater government uh, action, but it included things like ensuring that there was a, a job and wages guarantee for coal workers, for example. So as we phase out coal by 2030, we do it in a way where you offer subsidies to new businesses to come in and take on former coal workers and you then give those businesses a, um, a subsidy to pay the coal worker their former wages. So in other words, if a new business comes into the Hunter Valley and says, I'll take on a coal worker and I promise to pay the coal worker what they were getting in their coal job, then the government steps in and subsidises the the new business um, for a period of up to 10 years to ensure the coal worker doesn't lose out. And that way you start to grow the new industries in those areas. And yes, it does require um, government intervention, but it's the kind of industry transition that we should be doing. And of course, in terms of public ownership, of course, the, the Commonwealth does have a publicly owned generator, Snowy Hydro. And part of our plan was to say, let's expand that. Like That's got real capacity to now um, be snowy 3.0 and to have a big build of renewables. And also also for something like the grid, that is a, uh, for us, a, um, that, that should be a public good. It's, it's, it's a, you know, what, what a lot of economists would call a natural monopoly. And there's a lot of sense, we think, in um, building that up in public hands to allow generation that would be both public and private to jump on the end of the lines um, where the wind is blowing the hardest and the sun's shining the brightest. So we think very clearly that there's a role um, for government to play. But to your point about how does that expand and what does that mean for business and growing um, our support, etc., we were pretty clear as part of our package this time to say there's real there's massive opportunities in Australia for businesses to grow and for us to create the products to sell to the rest of the world in a zero carbon economy. So a big part of our plan was around supporting green metals, green minerals, green steel, green hydrogen, um, all of which could grow to to replace the um, the export industries of coal and gas as we phase them out. I've got a couple of questions, um, Adam. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of the first one's I'm, I'm kind of intrigued about what you think the dynamics of the new parliament will be. Um, how do you imagine that you'll be working with the uh, new Teal independents? So, sort of what, what, to what extent will you be working together? And secondly, um, the Greens and the so-called country independents and Labor came up with what was a pretty damn good uh, policy package um, back in the Gillard government. Was there, was there, was there sort of um, long-lasting goodwill from that relationship is that can that be sort of picked up in some form and sort of um fired up again to to work sort of in a a similar cooperative sense yeah well on that second question i really hope so and i think there's some really good lessons to be learned uh for all of us from that period like did everyone during that parliament get everything they wanted no um did we manage to pass some really good laws that cut pollution and created lasting institutions like the CEFC and ARENA that still endure to this day? Yes. And the um, uh, I think there's a real opportunity in this parliament to pass climate and energy laws that will then endure. Uh, there's uh, obviously a great appetite from the Australian people for um, for us to take real climate action, and that's reflected in the parliament. Um 
And look, the uh, of course, Anthony Albanese was the leader of the House during that 2010 Parliament, and um, there were independents there, uh, including you know, Andrew Wilkie, who was still in Parliament. And I think there's a um, there is a uh, a base of goodwill there, and um, and that can that certainly extends from our perspective as well. And our um, we can't be taken for granted in the Senate. We will be pushing the next government. But we would hope that we can have a cooperative and productive relationship that spans across the parliament. And in terms of the, the first question about the um, the teals, I think probably in that respect, just looking back at the last parliament is a good guide where what you see amongst this diverse crossbench that we've got is a spirit of um, respect and understanding that we're bringing voices to parliament that are outside the major two-party system. And even though we will routinely vote different ways on a number of questions, for example, um, some economic questions, we might we might go and vote differently. Where there is areas of overlap, there is a willingness and has been a willingness to work together. Um, it was the cross members of the crossbench, for example, who were the only ones voting together to say, don't give public money to expand the Beetaloo Basin. And it was Liberal and Labor voting together to say, no, that they wanted to do that. Uh, and I think you will find that that um, where there's common areas of common interest, people are more willing to work together and have the discussion. And I think mm-hmm. that's part of the reason they've been um, that we're seeing a bigger crossbench. Yeah. My second question is: um, uh, It's interesting to see to, to hear what your focus is. You're not sort of so much looking for an immediate change in sort of um, interim targets, although you very much like them to be done. You're kind of more focused on things like 100% renewables target for the grid. To what extent are you being guided by, say, the integrated system plan, which is being developed by AEMA, and consulting with the experts in that organisation or other similar organisations to sort of understand just how quickly we can actually go the um yeah i mean to, to be clear our priorities around coal and gas and stopping the expansion of coal and gas and that's 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 an absolute uh, that's that's got to be a critical priority it's not just us it's the international energy agency it's the un um it's the ipcc all saying that's got to be a priority um but yes on in terms of those uh, uh domestic transition issues we've spent a lot of time looking at the uh, at AMO's uh, uh, work and the ISP, the Integrated Systems Plan, and the various scenarios that have been um, laid out there for the last couple of elections now that has informed our work, especially around um, the grid. Like we might have some different uh, approaches compared with the government about how best to uh, expand the grid and support the expansion of the grid and um, we might have some different ideas about how you do things like, for example, bring um, demand management in. Uh, I, I think there's there's a really good case to uh, for an overhaul, a big overhaul of the um, uh, energy market rules. Uh, it's, it's a big question mark about whether it's still fit for purpose. Uh, but the, um, the the point about the expansion of the grid and uh, is is one that we've um, that we've heard. Um, from the from the systems operator uh, and the one that we accept, um, we and the the optimistic scenarios that they lay out about um, potential, you know, um, step change and the bringing in of hydrogen and hydrogen exports is something we're really we're really excited by the, the prospect of seven hundred percent renewable energy in Australia ex- using the backbone of the grid to help us. 
um, become a massive clean uh, zero emissions exporter is something we're really excited by. So uh, I've uh, got an observation that 40% of Australia's, uh, more or less of Australia's scope one and scope two carbon emissions come from the export sector mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, and most, of, a lot of that, certainly not all, but a lot is in uh, coal and gas, which also has obviously the huge scope three emissions. So that's an observation. I guess, Adam, my, my first question would briefly is, um, you know, Labor has made a point that they had a small target uh, agenda. They won office uh, uh, on that small target, uh, the, uh, and uh, they would um, they expect people people would expect them to actually stick to their what they've announced. Uh, how would you answer that? Yeah, well, I'd say two things. One is their target, their domestic emissions for target is based on the Great Barrier Reef being destroyed. I mean, that's what we learnt during the course of the campaign um, is that their targets at best are a, a, a two-degree target, um, may even see uh, temperatures go even higher. So it is, uh, but even that is based on the Great Barrier Reef going. So I think that's the first thing I'd say about Labor's targets is that it didn't get a lot of support from or very tepid support from scientists um, who made the point that it's not consistent with limiting warming to one and a half degrees. The second point that I'd make is that I think there's a contradiction, a big contradiction in the government's approach, which is that um, you know when we have a situation where the gas industry is the biggest user of gas, and it is, as you point out, like the the, the rise in the the areas in um, uh, our emissions data that show the rise in pollution is coming from the the gas sector um, because of this massive, not only leakage um, and methane being uh, massively toxic, 86 times more toxic than CO2 as a climate gas, but also the huge amount of energy that's required to liquefy this natural gas is seeing those figures go up and up and up. And um, these new projects like Scarborough, like Beedaloo, are not factored into Labor's modelling. So it, it just, uh, I cannot see, uh, and the um, advice that I've read and the modelling that I've read cannot see uh, how um, you can open these new projects and lift Australia's domestic emissions and still expect to meet the targets. I mean, evidence being given to co- in the court proceedings around uh, Beedaloo, for example, said just the Beedaloo project alone could lift Australia's pollution up to third, by up to 13%. Now, that's not even included in Labor's modelling or Labor's targets. So they can't keep, as well as the the Scope 3, general contributions to global warming that'll be um, massive if these projects go ahead, they can't meet even their own targets. Yeah, I I can agree. I would say that I think Beetle is far from certain to go ahead anyway, but uh, Scarborough's another matter. But let's not get into that uh, detail. The second question, just very, very quickly for me, uh, because I've got one after that, is um, uh, about away from energy on the Integrity uh, Commission, where Helen Haynes has got what looks like a very sound bill. Uh, do you think the Greens, firstly, should support that? And secondly, that the Labor should just adopt that so we could get that in place, uh, you know, by Christmas? Well, look, we've even gone one better. In the last parliament, the Greens got a bill passed through the Senate uh, that has a lot of the features of the Haynes model and it was a waiting vote in the House. And if Morrison hadn't blocked it, I think we'd already have the Greens bill passed and um, an Integrity Commission up and established. Look, we're not 
um, the, the issue is not whose name is on the bill, and there's a there, we support the model. I mean, to be clear, um, being put forward by Helen Haynes, it's a good model that um, has, as I say, has a lot in common with ours. Uh, uh, the so, if the government wanted to on the first day back, if it allowed a vote on our bill um, that has already passed the Senate, we could have a law passed within the first week. Uh, the it's got to have the elements that are in ours and that are in Helen Haynes's bill. It's got to be a watchdog with teeth. It's got to be able to look back retrospectively and has to have the capacity for public hearings to act on uh, tip-offs, anonymous tip-offs, whereas the Liberal government's model only allowed the government to refer matters. Uh, so, yes, I, 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 this is another area where I feel that um, there's a real prospect of getting something done soon. And ideally, it'll be in place before the first budget. And my final quick question before I hand back to Giles is about um, uh, fuel emissions. I mean, uh, you, the Greens and the Teals and I, all and just about anyone with a brain as far as I can see, uh, supports putting some uh, tailpipe emissions, you know, similar to Europe. I think you're going for 105 parts per million of average emissions when in Australia it's over 200 and Europe's got even tougher targets than that. I mean, I guess my question to you is, why do you think Labor, uh, Chris Bowen's been on the record several times as saying that Labor doesn't support that uh, at the moment. I uh, just wondered why. I mean, what, what's what's the problem that's holding them back? Is it that car prices would be higher? I, I just don't quite understand what the issue is. Yeah, it's tough to see. And without it, Australia is going to become the dumping ground for the world's polluting clunkers. Like everyone who's got... Uh, cars in the rest of the world that don't meet emission standards for places like Europe um, are going to come and dump them on Australia unless we have uh, standards that are in line with where Europe and the rest of the world is going. I don't know what their um, uh, uh, their reluctance to do it is, but it's got to be. It's a critical part of it. Um, we'd like to see there needs to be, I think, some carrot as well. Some uh, we've we've been proposing incentives for people to get their first EV. Uh, in part because like, the more that we do that and the more that we have the government, for example, uh, going uh, all electric, then you start to also create a second-hand market for EVs and it starts to, like, that starts to help to push the price down as well. So a number of things we've got to do, but yes, emission standards got to be part of it. Look, I think I've got an answer to David's question. It's uh, basically Murdoch Media. I think if we go back a couple of years now when Josh Frydenberg was the energy minister and he actually floated the idea of having a um, uh, vehicle emission standards and then, of course, the Daily Telegraph branded that as carbon tax on wheels. Frydenberg turned up to the Energy Efficiency Conference in Melbourne um, a week later and we asked him, well, what are you going to do about the vehicle emission standards? And he goes, well, you saw the headline in the Daily Telegraph, carbon tax on wheels, we can't go there. And I just thought to myself at the time, you spineless bastard. But um, anyway, and I think that um, Labor, um, as part of its small strategy, uh, sorry, small target um, strategy, um, took a similar um, option in the lead up to the campaign. Didn't want to see carbon tax on wheels headlines. So let's hope well, that they... Well, that, look, that might be right. But I hope that one lesson that everyone takes from this uh, election is that maybe the Murdoch media doesn't have the influence that it likes to think it has. Well, I think that's a very good lesson. One other important thing, to, um, Adam, um, for the rollout of renewables, transmission is critically important. Um, Labor has a twenty-year, a twenty billion, sorry, um, grid plan, um, probably up to about eighty billion dollars in investment. One of the critical issues here is going to be social license and the pathways that they have. Now, we've actually seen in Tasmania some Greens, elder states people, um, Bob Brown, Christine Milne, um, raising serious questions about the Marinus Link and some of the other transmission lines crisscrossing. Um, Tasmania. How are the Greens going to approach this strategy? Look, it's, the, 
there's a couple of elements of that. One is that the Labor's approach to the expansion of transmission, um, in our view, like it's welcome for all the reasons that I've said before. It's something that we've that we've got to do, and we um, are very paying very close attention to what AEMO says. But uh, uh, putting in public money into a system that where the rules aren't necessarily fit for purpose uh, in a way that just, uh, as I understand Labor's model, they're talking about assisting potentially private operators to expand on the transmission front. I don't think we've got the rules or the settings right in the national energy rules to ensure that we build the best bid that's uh, grid that's fit for purpose in accordance with what AEMO wants. We've got this applicant-driven system um, where it's not necessarily about what's going to bring down emissions and what's going to build the best grid. Uh, I think there is a real, and I understand, like Labor's approach is very much within the existing rules. I think we need to have a look at whether the rules are fit for purpose, including the rules around um, you know, things like RIT-T and RIT-D. I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced that they uh, are fit for purpose. Adam, I, I, just, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I think uh, ALP has said that they're happy to look at a revision of the RIT uh, rule. I just make that observation. Yeah, good. And like, and if that's, and I, I just think that the money, the expenditure on the grid needs to be tied to being sure it's fit for purpose. And I guess that goes to the second point about um, we, the, we support the principle of greater interconnection, but there needs to be a case for it, the case, and the case for it needs to be that it's going to result in um, increased renewables penetration and that it's going to result in increased stabilisation and that it's not having the um, uh, potentially adverse consequence of keeping, say, brown coal in Victoria in the system for longer. Um, the situation that we've had uh, up up to date has been one where the government has said, look, we want to build these greater interconnectors, but then it goes and supports, uh, put $600 million into a project, a gas-fired power plant, um, and refuses to have a process for the, the quick phase-out of um, brown coal in Victoria. So uh, the, the question of interconnection, um, yes, there's, there's strong uh, environmental questions, but there's also a big economic question, and uh, it's got to be about as part of a consistent and overall national plan to drive down emissions. And to date, under the previous government, we haven't seen that. Um, and we're saying, look, show us uh, the business case for interconnection and show us that it's part of an integrated plan to cut pollution and um, increase renewables penetration. You've only got three years, you know, in government, or a government only runs for three years federally, uh, you know, and I, you wouldn't want to spend two years of it arguing about a revision of the RIT. Personally, I think if you could just uh, pay some of the uh, landowners who, where the transmission goes through more money <laughs> and buy some social licence, quite frankly, uh, you could actually get it done. I think the crying need is that you won't get any of the things that the Greens want and that I want in terms of more renewable energy until more transmission is actually built. And that, I don't, in a way, I don't really care about what rules there are. I just want to get the job done. But I, I know other people don't agree with that. Look, we're happy to, again, it comes back to the point that I made at the start. Like, there's a real opportunity to do some really good things in this parliament. And the previous government has put us so far behind in terms of national energy planning, in terms of having a framework that encourages big renewables investment to come to Australia. Uh, the, uh, the, the systems operator hasn't got the support, I would argue, that it should have got from the government. And um, we do have to act and act soon to get things in place. 
And that's the approach that we want to take. Um, yes, there's going to be a big question that we discuss about coal and gas and opening up new coal and gas mines because we, the you know, rule number one in dealing with a problem is don't make the problem worse. And uh, we've got to, like, we've got to stop doing that. Otherwise, the task of the renewable sector in Australia is going to be even higher. Um, but uh, yes, look, our desire is to sit down with the new government and to work out what we can do to tackle what we know is an urgent crisis. One last question from me. Um, we're seeing today the um, in- announcement of the increase um, in electricity prices. I mean, it's kind of inevitable. They've been high and they've been extremely, ridiculously and unsustainably high in the last month or so. Um, this is a political problem because I think over the transition in the coming years, um, whatever happens, they're going to lurch around, they're going to jump, and then you're going to see more renewables being built, they're going to fall, and then you get the next wave of exits and they'll probably jump again. How do you manage that both um, practically as far as sort of bills are, um, are um, uh, impacted and household budgets are impacted, but also the, the political fallout from that? Look, I th- think one of the things that um, uh, would be great to see the government do is pick up um, the question of, again, of energy efficiency and savings that can be made for households, including um, also assistance to transition away from gas appliances in the household, because, of course, gas is also going to be subject to those same kind of price pressures that you referred to. We we would like to I know that uh, after previous government programs, kind of people have shied away from that, and I think that's an error. Um, the, I think there's a real... Uh, capacity to bring down, um, uh, pre- uh, to, to ease cost of living pressures for people, not only through energy efficiency, but also assistance with storage. And um, the, uh, if we can do something to get batteries on the same trajectory as solar PVs, including by uh, through government support and including them in the same types of schemes, then I think that this government could have a really good story to tell, uh, to say that uh, as you know, as, as all of those pressures that you've just outlined um, play themselves out, you, the householder, can actually insulate yourself from a lot of that um, by generating and storing as much as you can and by making your home as energy efficient as possible. And if they, and we've got some good ideas on that front. And if they did that, I think you people would see that you can actually tackle cost of living pressures while also bringing pollution down. Yeah, and good luck with that because, as I understand it, the housing industry or construction industry has just had the seven-star thing watered down uh, a building. But anyway, back to you, Giles. <laughs> no, look, I think we've just about run out of time. Um, Adam, um, we do thank you very much for um, your time this morning. It's a, a busy week for you and an exciting week. And um, congratulations once again on the result. And we look forward to um, this new parliament. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks, Adam. Cheers. Bye. That was Adam Bent, the uh, leader of the Greens, leading a um, a much bigger class um, in this coming parliamentary period. David, um, look, he's pretty clear about what his strategy will be. How do you think it might all play out? Uh, well, uh, you know, notwithstanding the enthusiasm and the uh, look, the 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 thing is that there's a climate reality, and it is a reality about that things are going to get bad if we don't do more sooner. That's an absolute climate reality. But politics has its own reality. Notwithstanding that you talk about the political bubble, you no matter how much the world is ending. You can't move faster than the people and the leaders would take you. There's a very old Zen koan, those who would lead should walk behind. And on the one hand, people like Matt Keane show how you can lead from the front. 
but Labor is taking the approach of leading from behind, more or less. Uh, but, you know, if they're in there, everyone is going to feel better and more is going to get done. They have this uh, under-promise and over-deliver part. Well, they've done the under-promising thing very well and got in there. Now it's just a question of how the over-delivering. And, you know, there's, there, there is one of the themes out of this election. You can see it very much as an anti-Scott Morris and anti sort of liberal culture, the old liberal culture, National Party culture, but you can also see it uh, uh, very much as a, a pro-science, pro-climate change, pro-constructive uh, approach to getting things done. Well, there's much yet to be seen. Um, one of the last questions we had with Adam was about wholesale prices. Um, as mentioned, the Australian Energy Regulator has announced um, price rises in the double figures in percentage terms for many parts of Australia. That's um, going to be a bit of a shock to the system, a bill shock. Um, David, I'm still absolutely staggered by the prices we're seeing on the wholesale markets, and I still just don't understand how it's happened the Australian Energy Regulator has really shifted the blame down to um, high bidding by coal and gas plants, um, particularly in the first quarter. It's even got even worse in the second quarter, but I still don't see, I, I, I just can't see what the justification is. Um, do we know? Giles, there's an old joke whenever you saw share prices go up, uh, what, you know, you'd get a call from a journalist wanting to know why they were up, and the standard answer from the desk was more bidders than buyers than sellers, you know. <laughs> so I think you told me that a few times, actually. When, uh, yeah, yes. but the, <laughs> uh, look, the, what we know is the same things that I wrote about before and several other people have wrote about. The, the coal and the gas prices are extraordinarily high, and this is one of the reasons why we've long said that it's better to have more wind and solar because that once you install that despite no matter what the capital cost uh it's uh it's got a fixed um uh you know zero marginal cost and you get a lot less volatility you're protected against these coal and gas price rises that's that's the one thing and either because they have all actually broken down or because uh, some have actually broken down and there's been some fiddling with capacity, we've had up to 30% of the coal generation out of action. Uh, and and this is just, you know, there basically isn't enough supply uh, except at extremely high prices. I mean, in Queensland, as my understanding is that the, you know, Clean Co has sold the gas from Swan Bank E uh, away overseas. And so it's not operating up there. In Queensland, the FY23 futures price is now... Uh, up around $170 a megawatt hour. So good luck to the government owning all the generators. That's doing consumers a lot of good up there, isn't it? <laughs> it's just extraordinary. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, good on Clean Co for selling the gas into the international market. Um, yeah, it's a, um, a fantastic initiative. Look, the ACT is actually looking half clever now because um, they've already contracted the equivalent of 100% of their renewable energy out. Um, the first auction had some pretty heady prices. Some of the solar farms were going at $170, $180 a megawatt hour, um, but they got most of their wind away for about $80 and $90 a megawatt hour. They're, they're looking pretty good at the moment. Yes, I, 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 they are. Look, solar and wind farms uh, owners who were going broke a year ago are actually looking themselves a lot happier at the moment. And this, uh, you know, should reflect the option value of actually owning capacity, whether it's a battery or a solar or a wind farm. If you actually can turn up when you're needed, uh, then you can make some money from time to time. Uh, and, and, and that's a great thing. Look, I should say that about Cleanco and Swan Bank E, uh, that it is only uh, a story I have heard. I do not know that that is the, uh, an actual fact. And if I have 
uh, if it is incorrect, I want to apologise about that straight away. But that's that's certainly it was a, it is a fact that Swan, Swan Banky wasn't operating very much for, for one reason or another. Yeah. Well, there's been some extraordinary things going on, particularly um, even in Victoria, I think, where um, Snowy's um, Valley Power Station was operating on diesel for 48 hours, but pretty much non-stop baseload diesel. I hadn't heard of that before. Um, we thought it was, um, we, we thought maybe this is a new an energy strategy from the federal government-owned retailer, but apparently it had more to do with the gas supply situation down in Victoria than it did on sort of arbitraging prices and going for diesel, cheaper diesel at the time. But still an extraordinary situation when you've got a diesel generator, a very big one, 300 megawatts running for 48 hours, pretty much nonstop. And um, I don't know what the circuit break is going to be, David. Well, it's not going to be anything in the short term. Uh, Look, I think to an extent, though, that, and this is a a hypothesis, not that globally, uh, we all understand Ukraine has caused huge difficulties with coal and gas. We can see the Chinese economy slowing down now, and that should take a little bit of the pressure off there. And China's own coal production is up 400 million tonnes annualised this year. And I think myself, it's a bit like the toilet paper rush, okay, when we had COVID. I mean, everyone saw that there was a big going to be a problem in coal uh, and gas markets to an extent, uh, particularly coal, and they're stocking up, you know, and it may be, it just may be that after a while it will tend to ease off a little bit of its own accord. But there is going to be this ongoing pressure for Europe to... Um, to get away from Russian dependence, and that is going to keep the pressure certainly on gas prices and probably on coal prices uh, for some time to come just yet. And so Australian generator, coal generators, when they can sell coal overseas, uh, all their suppliers can, are always going to be having an eye on that when it comes to the electricity price. So the only real circuit breaker in the medium term is either some force from government, which won't happen and shouldn't happen because prices are a signal, or just get on with building new suppliers as fast as we can. We have got <laughs> far more than any carbon tax could ever uh, we could ever want, uh, uh, except we're not getting the revenue from it, so it would be better if it was an explicit carbon tax. But let's get on uh, and take the price signals. Consumers are going to have to wear the pain, sorry, but uh, that's the price. And let's get on with building the renewable supply that we need uh, to make sure in the long run we all have some clean, affordable electricity. Well, good on you, David. Um, that's a very clear explanation. Um, I think that's a good place to end. I think um, we've taken up enough time. Um, thanks to you once again. Thanks to all our listeners out there for um, tuning into this podcast. Um, thanks to Adam Bant for joining us this week. Thanks also to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon, for your ongoing and enthusiastic support for this podcast. And we'll be back this time next week with another edition of the Energy Insiders podcast. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.